Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Military Matters. In this six-part series, we will discuss the importance of accessible education on active duty and military affairs. Each episode will cover relevant topics on today's military society, as well as discuss how community members such as yourselves can better support military personnel in the U.S. Our first topic today will be an overview of the military branches in America, and we will get more in-depth with an interview with a U.S. Marine Corps personnel. To begin, we will first review the main six military branches in the U.S. I will summarize the purpose of the services based on information according to USAGov. Starting with the Air Force, this branch serves as part of the DOD, or the Department of Defense. The job for airmen is to oversee aerial military operations, defend U.S. air bases, and build landing strips. The reserve component for the Air Force is the Air National Guard and the Air Force Reserve. Next, the Army, which is also part of the DOD, is the largest military branch in the U.S. Soldiers in the Army are in charge of mainly grounded combat missions often those that are continual and ongoing. The reserve components for the Army are the Army Reserve, the Army National Guard, and the Army Special Forces Unit, also known as the Green Berets. The Coast Guard, unlike the previous two branches, is instead part of the DHS, or the Department of Homeland Security. Coast Guardsmen oversee maritime law enforcement operations like drug smuggling, as well as act on maritime search and rescue and marine environmental protection. In doing all of these tasks, they also manage to secure ports, waterways, and the coasts of the U.S. from harm. The reserve component for the Coast Guard is the Coast Guard Reserve. The Marine Corps is part of the DOD and takes part in land combat as well as sea and air-bound operations. By doing this, they are able to support other branches during special missions. Marines guard the U.S. embassies worldwide and protect classified documents inside of these buildings. The reserve component for the Marine Corps is the Marine Corps Reserve and the Marine Corps Special Operations Command, the MARSOC, also known as the Raiders. The Navy is also part of the DOD and they protect the sea and oceans outside the Coast Guard's authority. Sailors on Navy warships set up runways for military aircraft to land and take off when they're fighting away at sea. The reserve component for the Navy is the Navy Reserve, Navy SEALs, which is the Special Operations Force of the branch, which entails people who take care of sea, air, and land special forces. The newest branch is the Space Force. This was created in 2019 with the purpose of expanding from the previous Air Force Space Command. Service members in this branch work to organize, train, and equip Space Forces to protect the U.S. and their allies in space. They work on capabilities of joining forces in space with other allies as a potential futuristic opportunities may arise. Now that we have a little background information about the U.S. military, we will break into our short interview with the member of the U.S. Marine Corps. Sergeant Major, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and explain your current job and general military experience. Okay, thanks. Um, my name is Sergeant Major Sean Greenleaf. Uh, I'm the Sergeant Major for Marine Helicopter Squadron 1 in Quantico, Virginia. I've been in the Marine Corps for about 29 years. I, I've served in the infantry for the majority of my career. Uh, I've deployed nine times. Five of those uh, were to combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I've served on both the East Coast and the West Coast. Uh, I was a drone instructor at Marine Recruit Depot Paris Island, South Carolina. I spent about 12 years of my career in, in Hawaii. Um, outside of my combat deployments, I, I deployed four times to Okinawa, Japan, and when I was um, deployed to Okinawa, uh, I was a member of the 31st 
Marine Expeditionary Unit. Uh, while a member of that unit, I deployed to Korea, um, mainland Japan, um, to Singapore, Thailand, and uh, got to go to Vladivostok, Vladivostok Russia uh, for a couple days. And, uh, you know, I retire next year, so my, my time in the military is almost up. Thank you for that brief introduction. Now we will start talking about the Marine Corps branch in particular for the U.S. military. Can you briefly discuss the differences in jobs involved in your career? Sure. So before I go into like individual jobs, uh, just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about what makes the Marine Corps um, the organization that it is. And unlike other branches that focus on certain aspects of, of the military, we tend to, or our focus is on fighting as what is referred to as a Marine Air Ground Task Force or a MAGTAF. Uh, a Marine Air Ground Task Force uh, is made up of several different, of several components. Uh, the ground combat element, uh, which typically is consisted of an infantry battalion, an air combat element, which is a, a com uh, an aviation squadron that has many different capabilities as far as helicopters, tilt rotor aircraft, and fixed wing assets, and then the logistic combat element that supports both the air and the, the ground combat element and the command element. Um, these these different elements come together in order to support a commander's mission. Um, traditionally, the Marine Corps is not the branch uh, of the services that stays engaged with the enemy for extended periods of time. Uh, we are typically the first wave of U.S. forces that make an impact and then pass on the work to other branches of the military. Uh, of course, over the past few years, uh, that has not been the case. As you know, we've we've been fighting in, in two different wars for, for decades, uh, and the Marine Corps has been engaged in those battles ever since. Um, today, the DOD is focused on the Joint Force, uh, which which is compromised as it's is comprised of each of the services coming together to fight as one joint force together. Uh, they deploy and fight under a joint commander. Now that we talked about the main purpose of the Marine Corps branch, we're going to discuss the differences between mainstream military service branches and special forces like the Navy SEALs, Army National Guard, and etc. Okay, yeah, sure. The, the, the military has a special operation command that's based out of Tampa, Florida. Um, they they are in command of Navy SEALs, uh, Army Special Forces, Marine Raiders, uh, and Special Air Force positions as well. Uh, typically, these Special Operation Forces are, are deployed for short periods of time to take care of specific missions that are directed by the Special Operations Commander in an effort to support the Joint Commander or the combatant commander. Um, although their missions may be short in duration, from time to time they're deployed for extensive periods of time to support a larger scale mission. Um, they're the forces that are typically uh, required to do direct action missions. For instance, it is often a mission that comes directly from the DOD to conduct, conduct a specific mission. Now, you, you asked about the Special Operations Command, um, but and then you also refer to the Army National Guard. So the Army National Guard is typically uh, employed by the state's government uh, with the, the guide, some guidance from the DOD. Uh, they go to the same recruit training as the United States Army does. Um, however, they're deployed at home to protect the home front. Uh, you know, often they're called into to action to support disaster relief missions, 
Um, they were called into action to protect the national, nation's capital in D.C. earlier in the year. Uh, they're definitely a very important asset to not only the, the military, but to the nation. Uh, not too long ago, uh, they were, I was passing through an airport and the National Guard was passing out uh, and administering COVID vaccines for anybody that was, that was eager to get one. So I would suggest the National Guard has a, has a, a large impact on not only the country, but each state individually as well. Um, I wouldn't compare necessarily the Special Operations Command and the National Guard. They're kind of uh, completely different, um, realistically. But like you said in your 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 statement, you know, we talked about other branches of the DoD. I spoke specifically about the Marine Corps, uh, and and we would we wouldn't be doing them justice if we didn't mention the the uniqueness special operations command as well as the national guard now that we briefly covered the special operations command the national guard the marine corps i want to know some people believe that military military branches don't like to work together it's almost as if there's some hidden prejudice towards other branches in the military can you briefly discuss what you think about these yeah sure so i mean the different branches of the military do very much work coherently together. Uh, they, you know, they, like I, I mentioned earlier, the Joint Command is is uh, what is taking our our Department of Defense into the future, and uh, you know, oftentimes combatant commanders are looking for a joint force to be able to to accomplish the missions uh, better. Are there some jokes that one branch pushes towards the other one yeah there are there are you know uh i would you know just like social media there's there's probably social media pages set up specifically for one branch to make fun of the other um i would suggest that it's it's very harmless uh it's often funny uh you know for instance one time i went to sign a document um, for my father and uh, the, the person that I was visiting to sign this document had an army um, flag hanging in his office and uh, I said oh you're in the army you know that's 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 cool and he goes oh you marine he goes should I break out the crayons for you to sign this so you know the uh, the uh, you know People often refer to, you know, and Marines, they ask if we eat crayons, uh, you know, um, and it's all harmless, right? It, it would be a person with very thin skin that couldn't take these little simple insults, these jokes, and let them roll right off their back. You know, I often say, uh, no matter, you know, which branch of the service you're in, as long as your barrel and the muzzle of your rifle is facing in the same direction as mine. Uh, then, then it doesn't matter what what you wear on your uniform as long as we're all fighting the same foot. On the topic of you discussing the different rumors and social media, I had come upon some statements saying the Marines are the most feared branch in the military, the Air Force is the safest branch to join, and the Army is the strongest. Um, is there any truth behind these statements, or are these just more rumors from the internet that you believe? Well... I, I think um, society has kind of made each of those statements a little bit uh, true. Uh, the, the army is the largest, um, so in, by sheer numbers, I would consider them to be the strongest. Um, the Air Force being the safest, well, I guess that depends on your job. Uh, I would say that every job in the military has a small degree of, of danger involved in it and some chances of getting harmed or killed um, and uh, now as far as the Marine Corps being the most feared branch feared by who feared by Americans feared by recruits uh, at boot camp feared by the enemy uh, well I like to think that they're the most feared but uh, I would have to ask somebody that's looking at it from a different position to know if it's anywhere close to being true um, 
but you know you didn't mention the navy and and uh i guess social media didn't have anything to say about them but uh you know we're, we're a big advocate of all the military branches and i think collectively uh if you look at one of our enemies um outlooks on the entire department of defense i would say that they fear each one of us and that they care they consider each one of us strong in our own way on the topic of these rumors i also have read a statement saying that the most prestigious military branch in america is the marines and they're the best representative service branch for the united states do you believe this is true and can you elaborate on why you believe that this is a common assumption yeah um are we the most prestigious i'm not truly sure we are uh you know i would suggest that maybe our, our uniforms make us look the most prestigious i think we're well put together i think we can dress up nice and and uh impress a lot of people um you know the the second part of your question uh about the best representative of the united states you know from my perspective the marine corps is great at at being a melting pot um we are truly a potpourri of every culture in 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 america i think that's what makes us the be best representation of what america is uh you know it doesn't matter where you're from uh, you could be from a small town in rural america and be best friends with somebody uh, a different color race gender sex um, than you that grew up in Los Angeles or Miami uh, you could have been a rival in high school and become best friends later on uh, the I think that is one of the strongest things about the Marine Corps is that we we break down all those social barriers because truly we're all in it together. Um, I, I would say, you know, that the Marine Corps is, is a great example of a team sport. No one person can do it by themselves. So I think because we come from the small towns in the United States um, and, and we, we melt together and come together as a team so well, that, that makes us kind of a, a true representation of what United States uh, represents the uh, now as far as being the most prestigious we do have a lot of pride uh, in our uniforms and uh, but more so we have pride in our capabilities you know we we've been uh, a military branch since November 10th 1775 and and uh, we we know our history down to the individual Marine knows where we came from um, what we've accomplished over those hundreds of years uh, they know that uh, what we stand for they understand our core values and um, I would suggest that just the amount of information that each individual Marine knows and the pride that they carry while wearing the uniform makes us that much more prestigious um, but I really do like your question about being the best representation, best representation of America. But just to, to, you know, not take all the the glory for the Department of Defense, I would suggest that every branch of the military has those same capabilities. Different people from different cultures that come together to be one cohesive team and one cohesive unit. On the topic of having the military be one cohesive team. I was wondering, are there situations where military branches go head-to-head -head in competitions? Like, are there places and venues for sports games? I know there's like a Army-Navy sports games, and there's also people competing in the Olympics. Would you like to elaborate? Yeah, so uh, you mentioned the Olympics. We had a staff sergeant compete in, in wrestling at the most recent Olympics, uh, the Army often has um, people from their marksmanship unit compete in, uh, in, in rifle and pistol competitions. There is um, opportunities where different branches um, will compete in different sporting events. 
Um, I would suggest the Marine Corps doesn't focus a lot on that because we're focused on other things. Um, but there are some amazing athletes in every branch of the military. And uh, I would suggest that to, to create a, a specific sports venue where they could all come together would be probably something very interesting and, and something that I would sit down and watch, uh, if not go to and attend myself. Uh, as a spectator, um, you know, each branch has very strenuous military uh, physical fitness standards. And uh, so, you know, to, to have all these uh, alpha type personalities competing on a sport, a sport field uh, would be something really cool to see. I was wondering if you could talk about the branch mottos and saying that are important when you're telling people the merit and purpose behind being a service member in the Marine Corps. Sure. So um, the Marine Corps uh, adopted the, the motto Semper Fidelis um, hundreds of years ago. Uh, Semper Fidelis is Latin for always faithful. Um, you know, it, it means that we're always faithful to uh, our country. Uh, our service, our fellow Marines, uh, to the individual American. We're faithful uh, to our commanders to make sure that we accomplish the mission. Uh, we're, it, it's a, it's a, something that, you know, is, is, is carried from one generation Marine to the other. Uh, it is, it, I feel that it represents our, the way that we, um, we go about our business daily um, being faithful to to the purpose of why we join the military uh, and, and, and I would suggest that if Marines remembered that simple motto and, and kept it uh, on the forefront of their minds then, then life in the military would be much more easier uh, if they just truly look at um, the motto is, is, is being as important as it truly is. That's very insightful and really important, and I really appreciate you going into depth about the motto, and I feel like that's very um, influential for any people looking to join the branch as well as just knowing the meaning behind all of the mottos. Um, also on the topic of Marine Corps, I've heard when military personnel are training sometimes they have battle cries for each other when they address people above or below them like oorah hoo do you have any specific one for the marine corps yeah so uh it's it's very common that when uh you you see somebody do something exciting uh or if you're addressing if a junior is addressing a, a senior um the, the term that we use is oorah, uh, you know, so for instance, uh, if, if a young Marine were to address an officer, they may say, oorah, sir, how's your day doing? Uh, or if they see something that is exceptionally motivating to them, they'll cry out, oorah, uh, in excitement. And sometimes it's just a simple greeting uh, when one Marine is passing another, oorah, oorah back, you know, um, it, it, it is, it is just as common as saying please and thank you in the Marine Corps. It's a term that's used, uh, all the time. Uh, and, and I would suggest that it, it is a good way to kind of characterize us. Uh, it's simple. Um, it's down to the point and, and, and it's meaningful. So, can you briefly explain the meaning and behind the colors on the United States Marine Corps uniform and what specifically is symbolic about it? Sure. So, um, you know, we have a few traditional uniforms that are somewhat symbolic about the Marine Corps. Um, the first thing that people think about whenever they, they hear the, the, the name Marine Corps is the dress blue uniform that we wear, um, you know. The, uh, it's, you know, it's got a stiff collar, um, and the reason the collar is the way that it is is because 
um, many years ago, we were referred to as Leathernecks, uh, often a, another, another nickname that's used for the Marine Corps. Um, and we were referred to as Leathernecks because during the early wars, when men were still fighting with swords, they would wear a stock of leather in their collar to protect them from sword slashes. Uh, so that's why we still wear the collar that we wear today in our dress blue uniform. Um, when you when you also can continue to think about the Marine Corps dress blue uniform, uh, certain ranks, non-commissioned officers, so corporals and above on the enlisted ranks, and all officers wear what's referred to as a blood stripe on their trousers. Um, on their blue trousers, they have a red blood stripe uh, that goes along the, the seam of their trousers on the outside. Um, that that blood stripe is representing the blood loss of non-commissioned officers and officers during the Battle of Chapultepec. Um, it's, it's because of those rich heritage and, and traditions um, that we still wear that same uniform in very much the same way. The, the, the collar represents our leatherneck history and the, the blood stripe re represents the bloodshed of non-commissioned officers and officers in battle. Um, the other uniform that we typically wear uh, that we're also known for um, is our service alpha uniform. It's, you know, an all green suit, uh, so to speak. Uh, but when you look back at Marines uh, who are out on R&R and experience uh, leaving Liberty during World War II, um, when, when, you know, you, you look back at our history of um, Marines coming home from the battles, they often wore that service alpha uniform. Um, and, and, you know, enlisted Marines wear their rank on their sleeves on those uniforms and both the alpha uniform and the dress blues uniform and officers wear their rank on their collar and on their shoulder boards um, on those two uniforms. So those are the two primary uniforms that are somewhat distinctive of the Marine Corps and uh, a little bit about the history and and, and uh, the reason um, why we wear the Marine Corps uniforms the way that we do. On the topic of representation of the Marine Corps, can you explain the meaning behind the Marine logo and its symbolism? Yeah. Uh, so the logo for the Marine Corps is the Eagle Globe and Anchor. And uh, again, like I said before, we, we, are, we are students of our own history and we, we know the, 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 the symbolism behind these different things. So the Eagle and Anchor represents three different things. The Eagle um, stands for the nation. Uh, you know, the American bald eagle is, is, is what is often referred to as, you know, Okay, Bob, you're going to have to edit this out, so I'm going to jack that up. Okay. Um, okay. So, the Eagle of an Anchor is our logo. Um, it's comprised of three different elements. The Eagle stands for, is representative of our nation. The Globe uh, is representative of our worldwide service. And the Anchor is representative of our naval tradition. Uh, the American bald eagle is, is often, you know, has all, always been a symbolical uh, bird that represents the nation. Um, the globe, like I said, for worldwide service, we've, we've fought in every um, climb and place around the globe. Uh, we'll continue to do that as long as we exist and, uh, and, uh, no matter where the fight will be, we're always ready to go. And then the, the anchor, like I said, represents our naval tradition. We are a department of the Navy. Um, you know, you refer to um, military uh, cutting jokes on each other. You know, like I said, we're department of the Navy. We often refer to ourselves as the men's department. Uh, so that's a little bit of a joke. Um, but, you know, for 
we were created in large part to defend naval vessels um, back in 1775 and uh, we, we are still employed aboard ships um, and uh, we have a very strong partnership with the Navy um, so that's why the, the anchor is represented in our logo. Um, the Eagle of an Anchor is something that's displayed aboard every base. It's, it's often displayed amongst um, Marines uh, homes, their, you know, the barracks, um, they're worn on our uniforms. Um, many service members have Eagle Globe and Acre tattoos. Uh, it is definitely a symbol that is not just known in our branch of the military, other branches of the military around the United States and probably and likely around the globe. So uh, something that we have a lot of pride in and something that we display often. Can you also explain the different ranks and titles in the Marine Corps? So the different ranks and titles in the Marine Corps. Um, first, the, the, the first thing to understand is that there's enlisted ranks and officer ranks. Officer ranks means that a person completed a four-year degree and then went to officer candidate school to become uh, an officer. Enlisted ranks uh, are Marines that may have a degree but not required. Um, who go to recruit training and become enlisted Marines. Um, there are nine enlisted ranks. Uh, typically when somebody joins, they are a private, um, private first class, Lance Corporal, Corporal, Sergeant, Staff Sergeant, Gunnery Sergeant, and then from Gunnery Sergeant, which is E7, or the seventh enlisted rank, Marines can either become first sergeants or mass sergeants, First sergeants can then go on to become sergeant majors, and master sergeants can then go on to become master gunnery sergeants or E9s. Um, there is one additional enlisted rank, and that's the sergeant major of the Marine Corps. And the sergeant major of the Marine Corps works directly for the commandant of the Marine Corps, the general that's overall in charge of the Marine Corps. There's only one. Uh, there's been 19 in total. And our current Sergeant Major in the Marine Corps is Sergeant Major Troy Black. Uh, the commissioned officers start off as second lieutenants. Uh, then they go on to be first lieutenants, captains, majors, lieutenant colonels, colonels, brigadier generals, major generals, lieutenant generals, and general. Um, finishing with four stars. So there's a one star, two star, three star, and four star. Um, you know... The, the overwhelming number of service members in the Marine Corps are enlisted, and I would say that the majority of the enlisted Marines are private, so E1 through Lance Corporal E3. Um, you know, with every organization, you have to have the workers to do the majority of the work, right? And, and that's typically how things work. Somewhat of a pyramid, more workers on the bottom, and less leaders at the top, and that's how it works in the Marine Corps as well. Sergeant Major, we briefly discussed in your introduction that you were a drill instructor in the Marine Corps, and I was wondering if you could reflect on your boot camp experience and any takeaways you have from being a drill instructor. Sure, so I went to recruit training in 1992. Uh, things, most people would think that things have changed considerably since 1992, but uh, Recently went to Paris Island where one of the two recruit depots are and and I would suggest that not very much has changed um, There are two recruit depots one at Paris Island, South Carolina and another one in San Diego, California um, Typically um, recruits that live east of the Mississippi go to Paris Island, South Carolina and those live west of the Mississippi go to San Diego I went to San Diego and I was a drill instructor at Paris Island, so I've been exposed to both depots. Uh, recruit training is 13 weeks long and uh, I've talked time and time again throughout this that uh, you know we don't do anything by ourselves. We are truly a, a team sport and uh, I think everybody learns that um, the first day of recruit training. Uh, they know right away and they're, they're addressed by their drill instructors that no one person will get through this by themselves but we will rely and, and need 
the assistance of each, of each other to get through everything. And, uh, you know, that's very true. Um, although the sizes of a platoon may vary, uh, typically they're between uh, about 60 to 90 um, recruits. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was a recruit, I couldn't tell you how many people were in the platoon. There was more people uh, than I than I would have imagined. Uh, as a drill instructor, typically we had about, on the average, 75 recruits uh, to a platoon. Um, the, uh, you know, the first day of recruit training, you show up. Uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. I got off the plane in San Diego and uh, walked down to the baggage claim and uh, looking around for a drill instructor and there he was um, you know Marine Corps drill instructors are very symbolic uh, their uniforms are always well well taken care of and their their campaign cover was often referred to as a smoky bear hat uh, is very distinctive and, and easy to pick out um, so myself as well as the other members uh, that were joined that uh, joined the Marine Corps that day who were on my flight walked to this drill instructor and uh, you know it was the first introduction uh, as a, a brand new recruit to a drill instructor and it was loud uh, I knew right away that that my life was changed forever and uh, and uh, you know you, from that point on you learn to move with a sense of purpose you learn to be loud you learn to do things um, correctly the first time because you don't want to make a mistake and uh, have to do it a second time. Um, the The first couple of days recruit training uh, is just sort of somewhat of an introduction, although uh, it's an introduction uh, that's force fed to you. Um, you learn the simple things like how to address the drill instructors, how to march in a in a straight line. Uh, how to address each other, how to speak, how to eat, how to make a bed, how to shine your boots, all these things that some people may take for granted um, being common skills, but things that have to be taught to you different when you're a recruit. Uh, after a few days of these, this introduction, then you're, you're, you're given over to your permanent drill instructors who then have you for... Um, for the next 12 weeks. Um, recruit training was broken down into three phases. Uh, it's since changed a little bit, um, but first phase was basically learning physical fitness, basic history, first aid, uh, and, and, and physical fitness. Um, second phase was, you know, the, uh, the introduction to marksmanship and basic field skills. Um, there's, uh, you know, in the Marine Corps, we pride ourselves that every Marine is a, is a basic rifleman. Um, during second phase of recruit training, uh, every Marine, every, I'm sorry, every recruit learns the basics of operating in an infantry environment um, or being a rifleman. Um, you qualify with the rifle and uh, and then you enter third phase which is truly the polished phase getting you ready to leave recruit training and be a basically trained marine um, you you know you do final drill you do uniform inspections and, and truly you're preparing to leave recruit training leave that environment and go on to learn your occupation before you join your permanent unit in the Fleet Marine Force. As a drill instructor, um, drill instructor school is also 13 weeks long and you're basically going through the different phases that recruits are, but as a Marine this time. And you're learning how to instruct recruits on the simple things that, um, that occur in recruit training. Uh, it's it's almost as demanding as being a recruit. Um, it's challenging. It's difficult. Uh, not every, It's not meant for everybody to be a, a Marine Corps drill instructor. Uh, it's something that I have a lot of pride in. Uh, looking back over my career, 
uh, it's something that I, I cherish the most and uh, you know I think we could probably you know create a, a separate podcast uh, about other uh, people's experience in recruit training and quite honestly uh, I could talk about my experience for hours but one thing that is unique uh, about Marine Corps recruit training is that um, if you come across a Marine from a different generation uh, if you know although World War II veterans are, are very rare these days if you come across a veteran from Korea or Vietnam and, and if you have nothing else in common with that person, you could collectively talk about being recruits and about their different experiences in boot camp um, for, for hours on end because, uh, you know, every enlisted Marine goes to recruit training and everybody typically remembers all of their drill instructors' names uh, and, and can talk about their time at boot camp all the same. Boot camp is definitely one of the most memorable experiences I would like to think from an outsider's perspective when joining any military branch. Um, I was also wondering, this past year was very um, important in the first um, initiation of women being able to train and attend boot camp with men, especially in California's Camp Pendleton. I was wondering if you would like to discuss your opinion on women now being able to um, attend boot camp alongside men as their counterparts. Yeah, so at MCR, at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island, uh, that is where all female recruits had been trained up until earlier this year. Um, earlier this year, two platoons of female recruits were trained alongside in the same company as male Marines. So in other words, there was four platoons of male recruits and two platoons of female recruits. Typically, a company of recruits consists of six platoons, and, uh, and that was the first. Uh, it was very successful. There were any problems that I've heard of. Um, prior to earlier this year, all, like I said, all females were trained at Paris Island, um, but there's four different battalions for training recruits there. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Battalion have always been male male battalions, and 4th Battalion has always been the female battalion. Uh, they live in geographically different places aboard the camp. Uh, their barracks are segregated, um, uh, although they will be at some training events at the same time. They're very much separate. Uh, they have different, um, you know, names. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, Lima Company and Oscar Company. Um, so sometimes they have graduations together, but outside of that, um, they never truly intermingle with each other. I think that it's important um, for us to accept this change. Um, the, you know, very soon, um, Paris Island, South Carolina is going to start intermingling male and female recruits in the same company again with that four male platoons to two female platoons and it'll it will likely always be that ratio four to two uh quite simply because more males join the marine corps than females do um i think that uh society is has you know caused this change to happen i don't think it's a bad thing uh i just think it's a change and uh it it it's something that, that we'll be able to, to accomplish just like we've accomplished all other things. On the topic of boot camp, I also heard some stories from people about their experiences with the Crucible in the last few days of their boot camp before they were officially sent off as Marines. I was wondering if you could talk about that as well. Yeah, so the Crucible is an event that, that started around 1996, 1997. Um, when I was recruit, the crucible wasn't around. Um, it is the last test of all recruits before they earn the title United States Marines. Uh, it's, it's, you know, about two and a half days with very limited sleep, very limited amount of food. Uh, it's extremely, uh, testing of their physical fitness, their mental agility, and most importantly, it's the ultimate test of teamwork. Uh, this is, 
you know, the pinnacle of their training while they are at recruit training. Um, uh, they will cover over 50 miles of hiking over those two and a half days. They will get only, you know, a few MREs um, to eat during those, those days. They'll only ever get four hours of sleep per day um, while they're doing that training event. And it, it culminates in a, in a 10 mile hike um, that, that finishes at a, you know, a symbolic location. For each depot, it's a little bit different. At Paris Island, recruits finish at the Iwo Jima Monument. Um, Iwo Jima was a battle in World War II in the middle of the Pacific uh, against Japan back in the day. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's also a symbol of the United States Marine Corps. They, they gather around this Iwo Jima Monument uh, at the conclusion of their hike. The recruits on, in San Diego um, complete their hike at the top of a hill that's referred to as the, the Grim Reaper. Um, and, and at both locations, the recruits are for the first time addressed as Marines. Um, they're no longer recruits, but they're basically trained Marines. Uh, then they're given their Eagle Globen anchor from their drill instructors. It's very uh, ceremonial. Uh, it's very heartfelt. Uh, you know, recruits are often, you know, in tears when they receive it um, because of the emotional um, feelings that overcome them. Uh, you know, they've just dedicated 10 to, you know, 10 weeks of their lives to becoming United States Marines. And, uh, you know, it's probably the hardest thing that they have done up to that point. So uh, it's, it's a test, and it, I would suggest it's the ultimate test for young men and women. Um, and and, and it, it is a great thing. Uh, throughout the Crucible, they, they participate in e-challenges uh, that are named after heroic members of the Marine Corps uh, who have gone before them. Um, people that have uh, been heroic on the battlefield will often have challenges named after them. Um, you know, Kyle Carpenter is a young man who is a recipient of the Medal of Honor from Afghanistan. There's an event named after him. Sergeant Major Brad Castle was a Navy Cross recipient from Iraq. There's, a, there's an event named after him. John Bassalone was a legendary machine gunner in World War II, and there is an event named after him. So these all have some sort of symbolic meaning, um, and I think, I think it's, it, it, it really resonates more in the individual recruits when they see that these challenges that they're being presented in training could be equal to challenges that they may face in combat someday. Looking back on your past experience, do you have any advice for a younger self or young men and women looking to join the military? Like, What are some benefits that you think that they should know about? Do you have any advice for them? Looking back, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'd do anything different. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps to, to be in the infantry. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that I've that I had that uh, that experience. Uh, you know, I wasn't a very good student. Uh, I would suggest that uh, if you're you're looking to join the Marine Corps, I, I suggest that first you take school seriously. Uh, for any young listeners out there, and I would suggest that if you are thinking about joining the Marine Corps, any branch of the military, you're doing it for the right reason. You know, if you're doing it to 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 get money for college, although that is a benefit. Uh, it shouldn't be the reason why somebody joins a branch of the service. If you're doing it to get away from your family or you're doing it to get away from small town USA or if you're doing it uh, for whatever reason other than love of country, uh, you're probably going to be doing it for the wrong reason. So if you're doing it, know that you're signing up for a, a, a challenge that could... Uh, 
you know, to be blunt, it could cost you your life, um, regardless of the branch. So, yeah, I would suggest that everybody does it for the right reason and not for the fringe benefits that are associated with it. Yeah, serving your country and your duty to the people and the people who have fought before you is always a good cause, and I think it's important for people to realize the real purpose behind joining and like you said it's important for people to find their own purpose aside from just the benefits um also as a civilian i wanted to hear your perspective on what it's like to be a military personnel in a society where most people are civilians is there a different way that you see life or you interact with people uh honestly i i don't feel that i interact with people differently i think that uh because I've been uh, the, the Marine Corps is who I am uh, I would suggest that I have different standards than other people um, I think that the Marine Corps taught me a lot of things that a lot of people in the civilian world don't learn um, good, bad, or indifferent I would suggest that uh, um, the way I carry myself is different, the way expect things is different um, the way I I conduct myself is different um, uh, I I think that overall the civilian world looks at us differently than we look at them however we don't often differentiate ourselves from them completely because oftentimes or I mean all the time we're interacting with them so we can't we don't run around in uniform all day long and after work you know there's got to be a time and place where you hang up your uniform and go and interact with the civilian world uh, and and you know if we if you try to differentiate yourself too much then you might lose the meaning behind what you're, why you're doing it right uh, we're doing it for that civilian person you know we're doing it for the people that live in the United States. So uh, I wouldn't draw a line, say I'm better um, than anybody. I would suggest that they are the reason that I'm doing it. Recently with the current events happening in Afghanistan, I wanted to hear from your perspective as a Sergeant Major in the military, what you believe and what you feel about them leaving. Uh, so I feel that the, the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan is overdue. Uh, I felt that, you know, after serving in Afghanistan multiple times that we could have stayed there for another 20 years and I don't think it would have made a very large impact on the government. Um, we spent 20 years training uh, an Afghan military that was about 300,000 strong. Uh, that's larger than many of our ally countries. Uh, so quite honestly, they were one of our largest allies uh, around the globe. Um, you know, the reason why we went there was to, to get retribution for 9-11 and, and to find Osama bin Laden. Or, you know, well, that's my perspective on it. Um, you know, oftentimes when you're there, you don't, you, you kind of lose touch with why you're there. Oftentimes you're just going on. Uh, a mission um, because that is your commander's intent um, I felt that we invested a lot of money into an organization uh, into a country and instead of going after the terrorists that were responsible for 9-11 we were trying to rebuild a country um, to, to suit our, our needs um, you know we're in the business of nation building and not hunting down terrorists uh, you know the withdrawal from Afghanistan is very controversial how it was done um, you know a lot of people in the United States see things from the news perspective and if you look at one news channel it's different from another's so you're gonna get the perspective of that different news news channel um, you know from my perspective weeks leading up to the withdrawal the, the United States and the Afghan um, government were were allies like I said they had 300,000 strong 
the expectation was that they would assist with the withdrawal. Um, they would provide the ex external security to the airport and we would provide the internal security to the airport and we would, we would you know, have somewhat of an organized way of, of withdrawing people. But as everybody's aware of, uh, the Afghan government fell um, days before the withdrawal began. Um, there, you know, when the leader of a nation goes into exile because of fear, uh, one can only expect that their military will do the exact same thing. Um, they, they dropped their weapons, they left their equipment, and they, they fled back to wherever they're from. Uh, quite honestly, the Taliban then took over the mission of providing external security. And, and these are all just my opinions, but the Taliban was interested in providing that external security to the airport for the simple matter that they wanted the United States out of Afghanistan. So then they could rebuild the nation to their liking. Um, oftentimes people talk about the amount of weapons that were left behind uh, they weren't truly left behind by the United States. They were left behind by the Afghan military and police department. Um, you know, all those weapons, all those trucks, helicopters, all the equipment that they have, all requires maintenance. And quite honestly, uh, it's only a matter of time until they're out of, they're no longer maintained and, and no longer operable. I would not think for a moment that they're going to use that weapon against us in the near future. Now, will those rifles be in existence for years to come? Sure, but but I don't think it's something that we have to worry about. Uh, when you see American-style weapons in the hands of the Taliban, does it hurt a little bit? Yeah, sure it does, because U.S. taxpayers paid for those weapons. Uh, but that was not the intent uh for the withdrawal, the intent was after 20 years of uh, teaching, mentoring their military, there was somewhat of an expectation that they would be able to stand on their own. Uh, again, my opinion, if we were there for 20 more years, they wouldn't be able to stand on their own. Uh, they have more, you know, a lot of challenges, uh, the way that they're, they're recruited, employed, um, paid, they are not the United States, they are not the Marine Corps, they are not the U.S. Department of Defense, um, and likely will never be. Um, so, I guess to answer your question, I, I feel that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was overdue. I feel that it could have been done differently, uh, but I've never been a national strategist, so I'm not going to necessarily say exactly uh, how it should have been done. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate that the United States lost uh, 13 of their men and women. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot of other people look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan as a very emotional thing. Uh, in other words, you know, service members that fought there say, what was it all for? And, you know, at the end of the day, it was for the man on your left and right and the person that you're protecting back home. Uh, that's truly what it was all for and you know that may sound cliche and it and it could be taken that way and I hope not um, but you know we went there with a mission we were told by our individual commanders to do something and we did it the best we could in the middle of a fight you rely on the guy or gal to your left and right and they rely on you so at the end of the day you have to remember that uh, you, you, you're doing what you're told, you're doing it for your buddies, and you, you're trying your best not to get killed. In honor of those service members that were lost recently in Afghanistan, I noticed that the flag has been placed at half-mast recently. Um, can you briefly elaborate the differences between half-mast and full-staff? the different flag phases. Yeah, so the, you know, the President of the United States can order that all flags in the United States be flown at half-mast 
for particular reasons. Um, you know, uh, a large uh, tragedy such as the 13 service members dying is just one example. Um, you know, it's fallen at half mass on particular days. Um, you know, on 9-11 it's flown at half mass. Um, and it's, it's just something that's done out of respect um, for those that have perished and uh, those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. Um, you know, the flag is flown typically between 8 o'clock in the morning and sunset every day. Uh, it's flown during those hours because those are the hours of daylight. Uh, it's every day that it's not flown at half mass, it's flown uh, all the way up. And, uh, and uh, it's important for people to understand the, the difference, you know. Oftentimes, as a service member, when I see the flags at half mast, I will, you know, look into why it is. Um, not always do I catch it, um, but, but it's something that I pay attention to. And, and quite honestly, every uh, person in the United States should. And I, I appreciate the fact that you notice that um, and that, that, that you stop to, to, to understand the importance of it. Well, I think we're out of time. Thank you, Sergeant Major Greenleaf, for your interview. I know it ran a bit long, but it was very insightful, and I know the listeners and myself have learned very important information, especially the Marine Corps branch of the military, as well as many other important aspects that we may have not known before. Um, I really appreciate the time with you, and thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me.